Welcome home, film nerds. I'm Emily. And I'm Austin. And this is Stumble Upon, a podcast where we discuss the films that we think are awesome. As always, there will be spoilers and swearing, but if that doesn't scare you, then grab some popcorn and put on something comfy, because today we're discussing witches in cinema. On this episode, we're talking about George A. Romero's Season of the Witch. Alice Hoffman once wrote, What is a witch if not a woman with wisdom and talent? And I think today we're going to talk about some extremely talented women. Austin, do you want to tell us a little bit about what it is about? Season of the Witch is about Joni. Joni is a dissatisfied, middle-aged suburban housewife whose daughter, Nikki, is dating a teacher and whose husband is seemingly always away. Her friends are beige at best and unhappy drunks at worst. Joni starts to wonder if witchcraft might be the answer that would solve her ills. That is an excellent description of a fantastic film. It is a description of the film, yes. It doesn't really, like, it, no description really does any sort of film any sort of justice, not really. What I'd like to start with is, this was my first time coming across this film that we watched uh, this last week. Did you have, like, do you have any sort of history or memory or 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 relationship to uh, this film or any of uh, Romero's works? No, I had never seen Season of the Witch before or even heard of it until you brought it to my attention. And it was a delight. What What do you think was the most surprising thing about the film? Like, it's a 1970s film. It was shot on a shoestring budget. I know that... Like elements of the films were shot in people's houses in which their children worked on the children of the people who own the houses worked on making the production work in those houses, specifically the house that Joni inhabits. Two things struck me the most about the film. The first was a personal and the second was about the film itself. The personal thing that struck me the most about the film was how much it reminded me of embassy housing in like the 80s and 90s. So I just really thought the design of it cracked me up. Because mm-hmm. it just kept making me think of all the houses we lived in all over the world. Um, that's just a personal thing. The thing that surprised me the most about the film was just how deeply feminist it was, mm-hmm. and how empowering it was for women to mm-hmm. be taking to be shot in 1973, and to have such a bleak outlook of the experience of women in suburban Pittsburgh, and yet to give her so much power was fantastic. And it really starts from the beginning of the film because it starts in this really interesting dream sequence where she's, where Joni is following her husband, uh, Jack, through the woods. And he's reading a newspaper and walking through the woods and only really paying attention to himself. Like he pushes branches away but lets them loose and they strike her in the face and cut her face. Like the whole premise of the beginning of the film is showing her kind of just passing through her life and accepting these these little beatings i love the way that you could the baby was just lying there in the grass in Mm -hmm. that dream sequence Mm -hmm. she doesn't pick it up which i thought was really interesting the choice to just walk past it so it was almost like she was passing the chapters of her life yeah um i found that really interesting it was so unsettling Mm -hmm. like it's it's a really interesting beginning because it does set up exactly what you're saying it shows her her chapters and how she even views all of them without any sort of words or any specific dialogue to describe monologuing why she would do this. And this is something that shows up throughout the course of the film. Like 
there are multiple dream sequences. There's this one. There's one that follows it shortly in which she's being shown her own house in which Greg, who is the uh, the teacher, is working at the ha- as a handyman yeah, in the house. Yeah, jack of all trades, and including he- the... Etc. Etc. And he's and we meet him in that case even before we meet him in the film. Like he's presented to the world, and and we find out that he is somebody that Joni has known in the past. Just a tertiary. There are multiple dream sequences in the film. Like the one that follows shortly after the first dream sequence is her being let out of a car by uh, by her husband on a leash, on a dog leash, which is... And then put into a kennel. And yes, and put into a kennel, which is also uh, reiterated later at the very end of the film in which the uh, the witch coven that she agrees to be part of and, and becomes reborn in a sort of way also leads her to an altar by her collar on a leash. Yeah, it's like, very interesting to ask that question about... Well, let's jump in. The reason, like, why is she being led about on a leash at the mm-hmm. opening of the film mm-hmm. and then bookended at the end of the film? Mm-hmm. Are they saying, essentially, that marriage and religion, no matter what religion and no matter what marriage, are both going to to tie you up mm-hmm. and as if a dog mm-hmm. for women? Like, your experience in both of these situations are going to be that what do you think? Yeah. Do do you actually think that it's being tied up like a dog, or is it just being tied up in a in a manner in which it's easy to understand that you're being led and forced this direction? Well, in the dream sequence, she's put into a dog kennel mm-hmm. and next to an actual dog, which I thought was interesting that there aren't other women in there. It's other dogs are in there, mm-hmm. so she's not seeing all women as that. She's seeing herself as a dog. Mm-hmm. And then in the coven sequence at the very end, when she is being led by a dog by the by the leash and then tied to the altar, she's then very gently whipped. Mm-hmm. So and she's on all fours. So mm-hmm. I do feel like it's suggesting that she's now being bound up in something entirely new. Yeah, and and even even that I think is interesting because shortly after that sequence, we. Like at the very end of the film, the last scene of the film is her at a a party with her friends again. And now she, unlike earlier in the film where she she kind of felt a little bit more meek, she seems really, really powerful. So powerful. Really strong and standing. And confident. Yeah. And, And yet she's asked a question by another person at the party and her answer is, I'm a witch. And then she stares off into the distance for a while. And it and the I think the film allows for that thing that you're talking about about her being part of another organization or structure that is uh holding her in place. Both at the beginning her structure with her husband and in the structure of marriage and then at the end in the structure of this new coven and that she's still maybe a little dissatisfied at the end of the film. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting read because at the very end, when she is being talked at by all those different women, and they're all envious of her. Many of them are envious of her. Mm-hmm. She killed her husband, and now she's back. And look, she's so lucky. And oh, she's this. She's a witch. Mm-hmm. And oh, the woman standing next to her, who looks very much like her best friend Shirley, mm-hmm. um, but is not, mm-hmm. uh, it starts asking her questions as you just as the f- camera just focuses on Joan. 
mm-hmm. and just as a slow push in. But she's asking, you hear this woman asking all these questions about how did you find out about being a witch? Like, what what is it about? Can you teach me about it? She's so curious mm-hmm. because clearly all these women feel bound up. Mm-hmm. All these women feel bound up by their relationships. They feel repressed mm-hmm. and and tied up and and lost. Mm-hmm. And they see Joan as a woman who broke away from that. Yeah. And I think that, I think before we, maybe it's important for us to kind of go through the whole process of how Joni gets to this position. I agree. Uh, because I think we are getting a little bit ahead of ourselves in regards to talking about what's at the end instead of like talking about how we get there, which is like structurally, there are a bunch of dream sequences, a couple that we've mentioned, and it continues on. And the dream sequences mirror or implicate a new direction towards where her life is going there's a whole dream sequence in the second half of the film in which Joni's house is being invaded by a figure wearing a mask who is assaulting her and each time we see this dream sequence three times and each time it changes slightly as if Joni herself is understanding what's going on in her life a little bit more and seeing the problem and trying to find a solution and finally that solution is killing the intruder. But that that dream sequence then breaks into reality where she kills her husband who arrives home from a trip, a work trip, early and is outside and is doing the same thing outside that the intruder in the dream sequence was doing. And she shoots and kills him, thus kind of ending the story of where she was at the beginning, following this man through her life. She no longer has anybody to follow. So, uh, well, let's let's cross that out. Let's say there was one specific person that she was following, and she has replaced that person now with a group in the coven, which are not really fleshed out outside of the leader of the coven, but we kind of get the feeling that there's a group of women that are, are, are doing this together, and they're going to be solving, a, a solving an issue of life together. Interesting. I don't know that I read it as a group of women solving the issue of life together. I just saw it as a group of women working together, collaborating together on this agreed passion and this their religion. But she does the, – the tarot card reader and the witch – um, that she does, we do meet and have a little bit of a relationship with at mm-hmm. the beginning of the film that kind of starts this ball rolling forward. She does mention her father is a witch. Mm-hmm. Her mother and her father are both witches, so it was very natural for her to become a witch. It's a religion she believes in. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do find it interesting that I there were no men in the coven mm-hmm. um, that Joni is joining. So it is a group of women who are working together. Mm-hmm. And, but you're right. We have no relationship with them. We don't get to know any of them. So we don't know what Joni's experience moving forward is going to be, yeah. which I think is reflective of Joni's final shot. And, and, and maybe the reason why I'm saying solving this problem of being uh, of being alive and, and living is because Joni seems to be using her interest in witchcraft to uh, fashion a, a romance with uh, her daughter's uh, lover, uh, the teacher, and and seems to be using it to solve kind of life problems instead of like just using it to deepen or widen her experience. I think that if we go back a little bit further, mm-hmm. so the dream sequences we start with are fascinating because they're showing Joni 
what she's struggling with. Mm-hmm. She's struggling with her relationship with her husband and her relationship with herself. Mm-hmm. She doesn't even re- she sees herself swinging on the swing and doesn't engage with herself. Mm-hmm. Just keeps moving past. And then we get to the other dream sequences of her looking in the mirror and seeing herself as an old woman. Yeah. And is shocked and horrified by that. Mm-hmm. So we start the film with this relationship Joni has with herself and her partner as being fractured and unknown territory. And then we immediately jump in with the therapist Mm -hmm. who tells her that she cannot interpret her own dreams Mm -hmm. and she is not at all capable of interpreting her dreams and mansplains the shit out of everything. Mm -hmm. But having said that, he also says, I think one of the truest things in the film, which is the only person imprisoning Joni is Joan. Mm -hmm. And that is the thesis of the film, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I also think it's really interesting, something that you bring up and something that I've slipped into as well is like, like her name, Joan and Joni, like it seems to be like people like talking at her or diminishing her, call her Joni, as well as uh, the teacher calls her Mrs. Robinson. And lady. And lady. So there's a lot of little triggers little microaggressions that are that are just within the text and it's part of the reason that i think it's a really rich uh cinematic text is because like first like i'll say this and i want to know what your opinion is i'm not sure if i like Joni. i like the journey she's on and i find her really fascinating but i'm not sure that i like her and i'm not sure i'm supposed to she's a flawed heroine yeah she's really interesting Mm -hmm. and i think that's why she's a fantastic leading character Mm -hmm. but no joan wouldn't be somebody i'd want to be friends with maybe maybe like is a bet is a bad term for it maybe it's too binary maybe the idea is i can recognize a lot of myself or a lot of other people and the self-interest that she presents and a lot of the problems that are are presented at her and told at her and there's just there's just grit to hold on to with her. Like she's complicated. Like there's a really great scene for me in which she's talking to her daughter. The first time we meet her daughter, who is mm-hmm. making herself up in a mirror, and her daughter turns and looks at Joni and says, and looks at Joan and says something to the effect of, "You're really attractive, Mom. I've never noticed how hot you are." And from that point on, Joan views herself kind of differently. She doesn't view herself necessarily as the old woman that's in the mirror anymore she's actively kind of on the hunt to be seen she also changes her clothing style and Mm -hmm. her hair after Mm -hmm. that yeah i mean it still goes back and forth but it has a younger vibe to her yeah and 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 that's part of why i'm getting at the maybe it's not as binary it's like like which one of us in life is somebody that you can go well that person's just this or just that like correct like she's a fabulously full flawed character that we get to spend an hour and a half with and kind of see all the things that we agree and disagree with from her like well and okay so then what's interesting then about that is thinking about her over the course of the film she changes so much mm -hmm. there's so much about joan that that alters and changes and everything she's doing is is kind of pushing herself out of her comfort zone Mm mm-hmm and that is an interesting exploration, yeah. especially because you think of things like Mayor of Easttown and how Kate Winslet um, 
was excited to play this character who is middle-aged and flawed. And she says, you don't have many opportunities as a middle-aged woman to play these kind of characters. And here we are in 1973 mm-hmm. with the lead character of this excellent film being a flawed middle-aged woman. Yeah, and not not only that, but most of the cast are middle-aged people. They're like outside of the daughter. Uh, and Greg. And Greg, who is... Of undetermined age, he's. They say yeah, that he's, he's a, a te- student teacher, he's so he's a, supposed to be like a TA. Yeah, he's supposed to be like maybe early twenties, but I'm not sure. It's hard like, to tell. Yeah, I mean, he could be thirty five. Yeah, he could. He could. He could have an old face. He could have uh, uh, just an old presence, but he feels a little bit older. Like, but for the most part, this film is full of representation for people who are in their mid forties or in their fifties, and there's actually a good amount of conversation. Like Joan's best friend, Shirley. Shirley talks about being over the hill about her greatest fears is that she's not done yet and there's this great scene between her and greg in which shirley just like thinks that she takes a hit of weed is lied to about it and then just allows herself to uh express all her fears to these people to 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 joan to greg to joan's daughter and the and she just what she feels at the end of it is that she made a fool of herself instead of feeling like like she broke through a barrier, like that she made an actual revelation for herself. Well, Shirley is is essential mm-hmm. because of that exact reason. Like mm-hmm. her unwillingness to look her truth in the eye, mm-hmm. she does. She admits all of her fears and her failures and has an opportunity to go, okay, so this is how I feel about it. What can I do to change it? And she does have that one little line that breaks my heart, which is come, she invites Joni over because then maybe her husband won't bother her. Mm-hmm. And and you just get that sense of like, so pro- such profound unhappiness in her marriage as well as her own life. And, and that's backed up by when Joan drops her off and she's walking to her house when Shirley is walking to her house and she's drunk and she stumbles to the ground and you can see in the background the door frame and her husband just standing in the distance in the shadows like a fucking serial he's, killer. He's so foreboding. And, and we I don't think we ever meet him. We like, don't and like, we don't ever see Shirley again after yeah, that. That's it. Like she might have all been murdered at that no, point. Oh no. <laughs> um but but what I what I really think is important about Shirley is that Shirley is like such an important um, vehicle for Joan to acknowledge her future. She mm-hmm. is kind of a uh, foreshadowing okay. for her. And not only does Shirley take, start the conversation about witches mm-hmm. at the party, yep. but then she takes Joan to meet the witch mm-hmm. slash tarot card reader. And then the tarot card reader gives Shirley the most interesting reading. Mm-hmm. And her quote is, strength and hope keep you armed through all this, not changing things for the better, making things bearable. So Mm. it's like this idea that Shirley using her strength and hope to help her navigate the space, but not changing anything Mm -hmm. is her, her greatest burden. Yeah. And then when she has shortly right after that has this experience with Greg and Joan and Joan's daughter and reveals this truth about herself, which is that is exactly true for her. Mm-hmm. She then goes and becomes ashamed of it and hides all this stuff. So basically Joan gets to have a front row seat and going, well, I can keep going down this path and be like that. Mm-hmm. Or along with like she then becomes it becomes the catalyst to change her life. 
Yeah. And and it's something that I think is really remarkable about the film. All the things that you're just describing is it is so well written. Like it is so well conceived mm. as a piece because it's it's like all these structural bits that you're talking about could sound like plot points that you're just building a character with. But Shirley is such a well-rounded character and the performance is so good. Oh, and Greg and chemistry with Greg is amazing. Yeah, and Greg is so good. All these people who are in Joni's life and and communicating their thoughts and we're getting Joni's reactions to them and feels and we're learning about Joni even when she doesn't say anything. When she never says something in a scene, when she doesn't stop Greg, when she believes that Greg is going to uh, shame her friend or embarrass her friend, that she just sits there. We learn so much about Joan throughout the process of what she does with her daughter, how she handles her husband, mm-hmm. what she puts up with. like Her the, action, her non-action. The great scene of when she decides to lie about going to Ash Wednesday and, and puts ash on her forehead from oh, their fireplace. we're going to talk about that in a second. But like, there's so much structure at work. Like The film is doing so much labor to give you an idea of who this character is and what we're trying, what they're trying to say, which is, I feel like in some ways that the film is just trying to say that the structure of life, you're trying to put something in it, trying to make something of your life. And no matter what you choose to put in it, you're not going to be happy because you're putting something in it rather than living it yourself. Like Joni never really satisfies any of the things that would make her life happy or make it have meaning outside of what other things are relating to it. That's really, I like that very much. That's lovely. You want to jump back to the uh, Ash Wednesday bit? Oh, we're definitely going to jump back to the Ash Wednesday bit. But actually what I was going to say was, what's really interesting uh, about Romero's writing um, is that he uses, as you said, it's not plot points that we're just jumping to. And yet each character drives it forward Mm -hmm. and they're so well flushed out Mm -hmm. i think that's what's so surprising because oftentimes in films you will have the character that is important to convey the message and you move along with Mm -hmm. but but you just you feel it like yep you had to insert that person there to make sure this turned that direction Mm -hmm. but these characters like the the tarot card reader the therapist greg Mm -hmm. shirley they're all a jack they're all essential for Joni's transformation. Yeah. And they come in such a beautiful, like such a clean order Mm -hmm. that you could almost see it as like ridiculous, but it's so well written and so well crafted Mm -hmm. that it's seamless. Like it's really not until the second viewing that you're going to really start to put together how masterful it is crafted and stitched together. Yeah. And and how, what scenes like it's a really like, it's a really well constructed film in the sense that the scenes fall in line in a really interesting manner like the scene in which they go to the witchcraft to the 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 lady who is who runs the coven then joan and and her friend go there is followed by the scene with greg and nikki and and shirley and Mm -hmm. joan and so we get somebody who learns about their restrictions actually tries to express their fears about those restrictions and then is then is immediately felt or is immediately feels ashamed about having shared those and how that would actually put a stop to her. And in fact, it does put a stop to her because yeah. she never shows up again. We never see Shirley again. But having said that, mm-hmm. 
Joan did not help her friend navigate that space at all. No. Joan was not helpful in any of that. She wasn't there. She did not have her back. She did not help her see that it's okay that she had this revelation. Whereas yeah. I feel like Greg, what's so interesting, because I don't think Joan knew how to do it. Mm-hmm. And Greg, on the other hand, is ready to help yeah. guide people yeah. through the revelation of your truth. Yeah. I think Greg kind of is honesty. Mm-hmm. He represents an alternate path. Mm-hmm. And so he's working really hard to get Joan to see there are alternates to her life. Yeah. And and because Joan is actually willing to look back at him and, and engage with him and show up at his school and everything else, she they they are able to evolve. Mm-hmm. Whereas, as you said, Shirley disappears. Yeah. Shirley doesn't come back and try again yeah. and try again. Because life isn't like you do it one time and it's perfect. Yeah. You have to keep hitting it and fucking going at it and trying to figure it out. Yeah. And that and, and and to be clear, like I think that what I was specifically speaking about was just the structure of of those two scenes together. Mm-hmm. Like how the structure of those two scenes worked. And I think that playing wise and how the the action and the acting and the direction works beyond just what the structure does is what you're saying. Like there's so much like there is obviously layers to the production of this. Not just uh, uh, not just the writing, but these really great performances that everybody in the film is giving. They're fantastic. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about Ash Wednesday? Let's talk about Ash Wednesday. Let's talk about Ash Wednesday. As the recovering Catholic in the room, mm-hmm. Ash Wednesday, to share with you a little bit about what it is, it is the first day of Lent. And Ash Wednesday represents when Christ was visited and tempted by Satan, okay? Mm-hmm. So it's a time of repentance, fasting, and reflection. And I find it absolutely amazing that Ash Wednesday is the first day she casts a spell. Mm-hmm. It's the first day she sort of embraces, she embraces herself as an emerging witch. Mm-hmm. And it's a, and she begins the first day of Lent with a lie, which is that she puts the ashes on her own forehead. She mm-hmm. chooses to do that action. And I think there is so much to chew on mm-hmm. by the choice that we're merited by doing that. Like yeah. what an excellent like discovery of her rebirth. Uh-huh. Like if you want to choose to look at it that way, it is Joan's rebirth at the end. It is Easter yeah. when she becomes her truest self. Uh-huh. The death of her husband, the death of her past life. Yeah, it- you saying that makes me think that, and I don't know this by any means, but it makes me believe that Romero was a Catholic or was making a very specific Christian point uh, about uh, a, with, oh, yeah. with, with with this choice. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It, it, it's interesting as well. Like you're talking about starting starting uh, uh, Lent with a lie or starting mm-hmm. starting off this new path in fact whether it's just lent or it's in fact her her transformation into being a witch both are being started off with a lie and like i know we'll get into the love witch shortly but it's interesting the parallel that could be made between the two films about how much the main character of both of those films are lying to themselves about the act of what of what they're doing absolutely like like the the core the core truth of both of these characters of Elaine in the love witch and Joan in season of the witch is that they both are being dishonest with themselves about their place in life. Mm -hmm. And they're in, there's an element of the love witch or there's an element of season of the witch where 
the characters are striving towards a different outcome. They might not be successful at it, but Elaine in The Love Witch is not looking for a different out outcome. She is trying to replicate the exact same outcome throughout the film over and over again. It's, it is a Sisyphusian task, her, her attempt to recreate the same thing. Mm -hmm. Whereas with Joan, mm -hmm. she's trying to become somebody totally new. Mm -hmm. So she I think it is fascinating the choice of when he is placing it in the spring mm -hmm. during at the beginning of lent mm -hmm. and then i don't know we don't really know the timeline of it it could be a couple weeks it could be a couple of days it's not really clear it could be 40 days it could be yeah you know we don't know exactly the length of time though i think it's supposed to only be over the course of like two weeks or so yeah but she's looking to be reborn as someone new mm -hmm through a sacrifice mm -hmm. and i think it's fascinating the yeah. time frame yeah it, i love it and poor jack poor jack gets to, gets to be the sacrifice poor the, jack the casual wife abuser jack yeah it's okay yeah it's not, okay that we're, it's we're, gone we're, we're not too upset no <laughs> not at all i mean when you air kiss your wife like inches from her face as you're about to leave mm -hmm. I mean, maybe you deserve to die. Yeah, I'm not it, saying you do. I'm just saying maybe. Yeah, it 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 goes on the list of things that you're like, that's that's awful. That's air a kissing, deal breaker. Yeah, air kissing, like especially when you wake the person up to say goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> right? It wasn't like she just accidentally woke up. <laughs> yeah, you're like, God damn it! Are you waking me up to air kiss me again? Divorce. <laughs> yes. With, okay. Yeah. So I have a I have a question. Yeah. And this one is kind of important. No. About season of the witch. Mm -hmm. What happened to the cat? The cat that's summoned after her amazing sexcapade with Greg. Mm -hmm. And she does the conjuring and she calls forth the god she was looking to meet. I uh -huh. think it was maybe Oberon. I, I don't remember. Right. And the cat appears uh -huh. and comes in into the wash onto yeah. the wash machine and then climbs up the basement steps. And then shortly thereafter, she murders her husband. Uh -huh. And the cat's in the living room. But like, I wanted to know, was the cat, I, I guess, was the cat supposed to be the spirit uh -huh. that's been conjured and therefore led her to murder? Or would you say the cat was just really cute and they put it in the film? Because I did notice a cat bowl in the kitchen in er one of the scenes. Earlier? No, nope, it was once the cat arrived, but there was a cat bowl there on the huh. floor. And it wasn't, it felt like it might have been forgotten. It's funny because like I have, I forgot about the cat i like they make such a specific point to show the window and the cat coming in and it's a long time for the cat like right like it's there's like it's a lot a, of cat action I, I know that there's like a an hour or there's a, like a maybe a 30 minute longer version of it somewhere or maybe 10 minute 20 minute version maybe maybe the cat the plays extended cut. yeah the extended cut is all cat footage <gasps> like and it's just cat here, cat there. Cat activists everywhere are astounded to hear there's a whole longer version with more cats. Yeah, and it might like, but then again, like in that scene, it probably was a pacing thing. Like I think about like we needed to cut away, and there was like the other footage that we could have cut away to didn't make any sense. I think you're right about saying that the cat had more to do with the the actual Romero cut that we never get to see. Yeah, that would make more sense because it just feels like it was so it was sort of there, and it was like. But then it didn't amount to anything. Yeah. But but then again, you know, like maybe it's just maybe it could be symbolic of the fact that like the like as you were saying, the spirit 
the spirit that she conjured has come home. Getting, think, getting back to the dream sequences. So, yeah, returning to the dream sequences, there was something that I really noticed. And that was the camera work in the dream sequences was exceptional. Mm-hmm. I loved that there were skewed angles. I think they used a fisheye lens a couple of times. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of movement. There were really tight close-ups mm-hmm. and, and a lot of jump cuts. And everything about it felt very disorienting mm-hmm. in a really wonderful, fluid way. Yeah. Uh, and it really contrasted with regular life and, mm-hmm. and the rest of Joni's world so that we didn't have to change the color. There was no color temperature change. There was no too many blues, too many oranges. None of that stuff was happening. Mm-hmm. There was no blue, blue change so that we knew that we were in a different <laughs> yeah. dream sequence. Like when or a completely different film. <laughs> yep. Um, right. That. Um, but, but, but I really appreciate that that the by using different style of camera work, you can really tell a different element to your story. Mm-hmm. And I love it when directors choose to play around with how they shoot a scene and make it structurally different. Mm-hmm. To indicate to the audience, pay attention, this is different. Yeah. How did you feel about the camera work? Well, I I also, I just want to echo all of what you said. I think that there's, like, I think one of the most interesting things about it is that he holds true to that idea. He never, like, there's never a bit in the film where they cheat. Like, there's a rule. Like, if it's a dream sequence, it's going to be this fisheye lens or this really close up. It's, it looks different. And the domestic scenes or the scenes that are outside of the dream sequences are very, very structured, straightforward. They're nothing, there's nothing, there's no, there's nothing stylistic to look at them and go, Oh, that like, there's something, there's somebody working really hard to make something happen here. It's just, it's just there. Like even the very clean. Yeah. And, and on sticks. Yeah. There isn't a lot of movement. There no. are some tight close-ups, but mm-hmm. not to the extreme that the, you see in the in yeah. the dream sequences. And, but even the lens choice isn't the same. Like mm-hmm. at that point, it's just a, it's just like a like a fifty or or a thirty five. Mm-hmm. It isn't anything that's like really bubbly or or that obscures or makes a dynamism 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 of of the shot like there isn't like a dynamic action to the shot because of the because of the lens choice it's and there's all, no movement yeah the movement is entirely reserved the handheld work is entirely reserved for dream sequences yeah and and it's also why part of the like the last sequence in which um or the scene in which joan kills her husband is so striking is because it's set up the same way as the dream sequence but it is shot differently yeah that is fascinating it is a a complete replica of the dream sequence but on sticks Mm -hmm. and wide yeah so we know this is still reality yeah and we are like there are so many cues then and so many clues that it's just a normal scene not a not a dream sequence not something that's different but yet I remember when we were first watching it, like when, when, uh, what's his fucking name? When, uh, Jack shows up at the home, you let out an audible gasp of like, oh no, because you could tell what was happening. You mm-hmm. knew that he was going to get his ass shot. He's going to get murdered for coming home yeah. because he didn't give her a heads up. Right. And it, it's and so. And that's on him. Yes. That's, that's why you always let somebody know that you're coming home. <laughs> You, you text them from outside and you're Especially like, Especially hey. in the 1970s before cell phones. Yeah. 
And you're like, hey, I, I'm going to rotary in. I'm going to let you know I'm coming in a day early. <laughs> Please don't murder me yeah. when I show up at three in the morning. Yeah, that it it doesn't behoove me to get shot by you. Oh, and the dismissiveness of the cops. Yes, at the was end. Was so yeah. interesting how totally dismissive they were mm-hmm. of of the scene of he's just bleeding out in the rain mm-hmm. and we see the sirens but nobody comes over to help him he's yep. still moving yep. but nobody's coming over to help him mm-hmm. and then the way they talk about Joan and let me just see my notes I wrote down one of the things they said which I couldn't believe it it was it was just like well they were saying something like it, she's just gonna get away with it here we go Goddamn women they get it all in the end they get it all from us what? Yeah. What are you talking about? This entire film is about the repression of women mm-hmm. and and the patriarchy and then of course it's so it's so masterful to put that in at the end as a voiceover of just how the patriarchy is looking at women. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Well, it it's also fascinating in in juxtaposition with all the women who talk to Joan about how lucky she is that her husband's away all the time, how envious all of her friends are of her situation. Like it, it's like the patriarchy also in this regards extends to uh, the feminine presence around Joan. Like everybody, like how everybody is condensing their opinions of self onto her and making her emblematic of the things either they want or they fear in themselves or that they uh, wish to change. Like, there is, there are, like, she is, she's like, a, she's the hole in which all these thoughts have to pass through. And she's just, she's just, there's just an onslaught of this shit throughout, throughout the film on her. Which is, I mean, true for now too. Like you think about how we all view social media and how we interact with each other. We're constantly comparing and contrasting ourselves mm-hmm. to people we don't even know constantly. Yeah. And, and so I think it's an, it's an excellent um, microcosm mm-hmm. of the human condition, yeah. which still exists today. Now that we've talked about this, these two films for a good long while, are there any other kind of films that you would stumble upon? Well, of course. Mm-hmm. There are so many films that we would recommend. And, of course, I mentioned it a bit earlier. Anna Biller's The Love Witch mm-hmm. is amazing. You absolutely have to watch it. We are going to discuss it in a future episode. But for now, we have to recommend it because if you like Season of the Witch, then you're really going to like Anna Biller's The Love Witch. Uh-huh. It's very campy. It's very styled. It's very specific. She did all of the work herself. All of it. All of it. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to recommend The Love Witch. And what I would recommend, um, Married a Witch is a great... I Married a Witch with Veronica Lake. Yep. It's a beautiful little horror film. And not, it's not a comedy. comedy. Comedy about it's a witch. Really comedy. It's really fun. It's Veronica Lake. You, yeah. Veronica Lake is a comedian. She's great. Yeah. I don't think people realized how funny she was. No. Um, and then um, we're probably going to talk about all of those. Yeah, at some point. I think we're going to circle back and do more witches. But for now, I feel like that's a pretty good... First step at this? First episode. I hope you guys like it. You should oh. definitely comment. Tell us what you think. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. And um, for sure, check us out. We are on Fishtown Films. Mm-hmm. You can find us on Instagram at Fishtown Films. We are a very small indie film studio. Mm-hmm. 
based in Philadelphia. We make amazingly obscure, absurdist art, but also really straightforward romantic thrillers. I, I love how that started off as really positive. Like, we make amazingly obscure. <laughs> like, like you realize that you... I didn't mean to do that. It sounded like you realized that you had given us too big a compliment at the top. And then you're like, no, 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 no. I must back off this compliment. Must, must not be positive Retreat. about self. Catholicism, guilt, guilt, so much guilt, <laughs> the endless guilt. But um, yes, follow us uh, at Fishtown Films on Instagram. Check in with us. Tell us what you think. Mm-hmm. If there's any requests you have, you can throw them our way. Um, but yeah, we're gonna spend the next couple of months doing all kinds of podcasts about all kinds of things, mm-hmm. and we will post it in our stories. Uh, when we're going to be releasing the next episode and what it's about ahead of time so you guys can watch the films beforehand. Yeah. And we really appreciate it chatting with you guys today. This was really fun. Yeah, thank you for your time. Join us next time to see what we have stumbled upon next. Bye. Bye.